to Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on a smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-aid experiences, and application tips to help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation with the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Zach Harris, a former admissions officer at Johns Hopkins University, George Washington University, Bowdoin College, and Regis College, about how admissions works at Johns Hopkins University. Zach and I will discuss the Johns Hopkins application components and how students might gain admission. Hi, Zach. How are you today? I'm good, Alan. How are you? Thank you for having me today. I'm good. Thank you. Well, could you just first of all tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, at Ingenious, I'm the uh, Assistant Director of College Counseling and Communications, and I sort of joke around with people that it just means I've been doing this for a long time. This is, I think, my like 15th year uh, working in higher education, which still feels like very crazy to me that I've been doing it for this long. Uh, five of those uh, at Ingenious and then the previous 10 working in all of the places that you mentioned uh, in the intro. And uh, yeah, I mean, education has been sort of a really important part of uh, obviously sort of my background and uh, my college experience and have always wanted to, to give back to students and families um, in the best way that I can. So this is sort of what I've been doing for a long time. And what did your role entail specifically at Johns Hopkins? Uh, at Hopkins, I was obviously part of the admissions office, sort of, you know, reading applications on the road, recruiting students, sort of all of the normal things that sort of admissions officers, uh, officers typically do. I also led our sort of at the time what we called our multicultural recruitment efforts. So uh, any type of um, open house events that we were having dealing with sort of diversity, equity, inclusion, or uh, specifically talking with students and families about sort of that experience on Hopkins campus. Um, I was sort of the point person for, for, for families and students, but also for my colleagues when it came to what that looked like within our admissions process as well. And you have a really unique perspective since you've worked in the admissions offices at multiple schools. Did the admissions process vary at all between these different schools or were there different things that you noticed that were different between each school when it came to admissions? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. So I think one of the sort of like misnomers about the process of admissions is that like everybody does it the same. Uh, so no matter what school you work at or no matter what school you're applying to, it's sort of like a cookie cutter model and like that's how it works. And I think families to some degree gain maybe confidence from that idea. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. And, and it's something that because of my experience working at so many places, I've been able to, to see, you know, what are differences, you know, what are things that are different priorities, you know, at different places or what things were valued, you know, more so than others, or even just like logistically in terms of the process from how an application was read, what systems were being used, who sort of ultimately were making the decisions, what committee, you know, looked like, uh, and then ultimately how the class was shaped. So at all sort of four places that I had the privilege of working, every place did things, you know, sort of a little bit different. Uh, working at a place, uh, sort of very quickly, working at a place like GW, which was the school of more than 10,000 students getting obviously tens of thousands of applications at a selective place 
looked different than working at a place like Hopkins, which is sort of, you know, 6,000 or so students, highly selective, taking much fewer students, you know, in the admissions process. So the way in which, you know, you're sort of comparing students, investigating uh, their high school context and environment, and then ultimately, you know, choosing the the best, you know, sort of people and, and applications, you know, from the pools, you know, looked different. And now it's not about bad or good, you know, or anything along those lines. But when you're looking at bases that have differences in selectivity, it's just a different process. You're looking at things from a different type of lens. You're making, in some cases, harder decisions because everyone looks great academically. So how are you then, you know, sort of parsing between, you know, X, Y, and Z components? And that's a lot of what we talk about at Ingenious, you know, with our students that are looking at some of these places that are really hard to get into. Again, I think a lot of families and students think, well, I'm a great student and I've had great testing um, and I've taken really great courses. Yeah, but so is everybody else, like literally applying to those places. So it's not just about that. So I think my experience has been helpful to be able to talk to my own students, manage the staff that I do to be able to sort of give them some information that hopefully helps them better understand how things work on the inside of the process. What kind of students is Johns Hopkins looking for? And then what attributes might students explore if they'd like to showcase school fit? Yeah, so I really sort of maybe more so than other places that I've worked, there definitely was a focus on students who had a lot of ambition. Now, that's like an intangible sort of quality, but when you have students of the caliber that Hopkins is accepting every year and the way that training works and the things that we're sort of looking for, it's very easy to sort of pick up within various pieces of the application where that ambition comes through, where the, 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 the desire for someone to challenge the status quo, you know, may come into play. A student who is really sort of stretching themselves to not just succeed in the comfort of sort of what their environment or community is sort of giving to them, but sort of basking in the uncomfortable and sort of being sort of comfortable in discomfort, if that makes sense. And I think that was something that really I appreciated about the type of student that we admitted and who eventually enrolled at Hopkins was that it was a place where there was constant challenge and constant desires to make things different or, you know, really advocate, you know, for oneself or empower, you know, other students or communities depending upon who the person was. So I think that was something that really, you know, speaks to me. And even now, I think when you look on their website or you learn more about the type of student that does well sort of at Hopkins, I think it, it feels very similar in the sense that you're not going to a place at Hopkins to just like skate through for four years and like not do something pretty incredible. Like you're going there purposefully because you're going to be given a lot of opportunities and a lot of resources and a lot of advantages to take something that matters to you and, and shape it, you know, into your own and then make it something that's pretty incredible. So I think on the fit side of things that appeals to you then I think then Hopkins could potentially be a really good fit. But 
if that doesn't sound like it's you or that sounds like scary or it's not really something you're looking to get into, like that's perfectly okay as well. But when you're going through that admissions process and, and going through the essays that they're having you write or uh, other pieces of the application that you're submitting, you just have to you know, understand, you know, sort of what they're looking for versus what other places might be valuing and how that might be different. And expanding on that, what would you say makes Johns Hopkins unique compared to other elite schools? Off the top of my head, I think of it as like more of like a STEM school, a very competitive school. You know, when I worked there, you know, one of the things that we sort of always talked about, like in our information sessions was this idea like of research. And I think at a lot of places, you you hear a lot about that. And, and certainly, you know, most colleges, if not everyone sort of has a, a focus on that. But given that they literally were like the first like research institution, like in the entire country, I think sort of the foundation in research and not just from like the STEM perspective, but like in every major, every discipline, every department perspective is something that really appeals to students. And I think does make it a little bit different than other places from the fellowship opportunities and the internship sort of experiences that are offered you really have an ability, you know, nearly as like a first year student to jump like right into these like co-curricular experiences in a way that does feel different than a lot of other places that are maybe focusing more either on graduate students or more like on upper class, you know, women and men. Hopkins is a place where, you know, if you again have that ambition, have that desire to like really, you know, jump into something and you're skilled enough to do it and have ideas, you know, professors and and other, you know, resources on campus are going to give you the opportunity to do it. So, you know, when we're sort of splitting hairs, like there's, there's probably more commonalities than differences, like at some of these top places. But I think for me, what I've appreciated is that the undergrad experience, the, uh, the real desire to, to empower students feels different to me in a way that if you're sort of looking at, you know, comparative institutions, you know, it is sometimes not the same. Students can choose to apply early decision, early decision two, or regular decision. Mm -hmm. um, if I was one of your students and I was applying to Hopkins, how would you recommend distinguishing between these different options? Yeah. So, you know, I think when we talk about sort of early options to our students, you know, there's, there's always this sense of, wanting to talk to them and listen to them about, you know, their interest level and, and what are the qualities that they're talking about that they're looking for in a school? How are they talking specifically about Hopkins, you know, versus, you know, some, some other places, you know, we never want to push, you know, early decision, you know, either one or two, because it's, you know, that binding commitment that if you get in, you know, you're going. So I think it's like this really delicate balance of, knowing that the early decision process typically is giving students a pretty solid advantage, you know, to being admitted, but also having to really feel out your students to better understand, is that something that they're comfortable with? Like, do they want to make that commitment? And I think more so, you know, over the past two to three years, and whether this is pandemic connected or not, I have seen sort of more students shy away from, from early decision because they want options. They want to see, you know, what happens. They want to see, you know, where they're getting in and then sort of have that discussion with their families later about where they're ultimately going to go. But I think ED, ED2 will always be, you know, popular for, you know, a segment of the population. And I think on the Hopkins end, you know, ED2 is new. It was not something that was there when I was working in the office. I believe it's, this is its 
third year potentially in play, but, you know, working at other places that had ED2, something that allows a student who in a lot of cases didn't get in to their to their ED1 choice, find other options, find similar places. And, and most likely, you know, your ED2 school is going to be on your list, you know, in August and September. It's not something you typically are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to apply ED2 there, you know, in, in December, not having, you know, done the requisite research. Um, but I think ED2 gives, you know, a great benefit to students who, who want to make that commitment. It also helps on the college end, because you know that you're getting that commitment. So you're always excited about students that really want to go. So I think to answer your question sort of more specifically, I think it's always about feeling out how excited is the student about Hopkins and and can I sort of feel that this is really where they want to be? Because again, because of that commitment, you just always want to make sure if you're going to go down that road that you're ready to go down that road. Uh, and if there's, you know, a sense of um, hesitation or caution, then that's okay. That's why they have regular decision. And that can be a really great option for students as well. Speaking of commitment, does Hopkins track demonstrated interest? They don't track demonstrated interest in a way that plays a significant role in the admissions process. So what I mean by that is every single college tracks what you're doing with them. So I think this sort of demonstrated interest idea gets a lot of like attention because families and students want control and they think or want to be able to say, well, I did 10 things with this college, like that helps me to get in. And ultimately, there are some places that it matters more that if you're going to go to information sessions or talk to an admissions officer or attend like a student panel, they're looking at that as a way to gauge your desire, you know, to attend the institution. Places like Hopkins and sort of other places of that caliber, almost everyone is doing something. So it's really hard to like make yourself feel different when everyone is, you know, either going to campus or attending a virtual session now or doing something that allows you to know a lot more about the institution. So no, it wasn't something where it was like, well, we're deciding between sort of like two people and, you know, this person, you know, has done more stuff, like let's admit them like that. Those are conversations that can't happen at a, at a place like Hopkins or that are similar because it's, you know, you're just getting too many applications for, for, far too fewer spots. But in other places, like when I worked at GW, for example, it was something that played a little bit more of a role because again, you wanted to sort of gauge, is this person going to potentially come? You know, I think it's something where for schools that are sort of in that selective sort of space, but maybe not as selective as sort of like that top 20, 30, 40 in the country, I think you can play a significant role because you're sort of hedging your bets and trying to better understand if a person's like really interested. But when I was at Hopkins, those conversations didn't happen in the same way they would at other places because again, you know, applications were too high, spots were too coveted, and uh, we were looking at a lot of other factors to help make our decisions. And if a student is deferred early, they should write a letter of continued interest? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think Again, you know, when I talk about this, even with my own students at Ingenious, I always sort of caution the idea of the letter, like being the thing that gets you in, because ultimately there are so many priorities and so many things that an admissions office is going to be looking at, you know, from a deferral list, you know, from a wait list list that is going to help make their decision. So I think the letter of continued interest feels like it's mandatory. And I think it, and it is because 
if I'm going to sort of be looking at you as someone who's going to potentially be admitted off of any one of those opportunities, I want to know that you're still interested. And if you haven't been in touch with this office since you submitted your application, there's a part of me that will assume what you've sort of moved on you know, to other things. So the letter becomes an important part to sort of like continue the conversation, but there are going to be a, like many, many other factors that will sort of get someone into the class. But I think the letter can become important to demonstrate the interest, you know, talk more about why you want to attend, give someone updates about what's been going on and things like that. You and I did a whole episode last year on test optional policies. So Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. right now is test optional through the 2025-2026 yes. admissions cycle. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're not in their admissions office right now, but how do you think current admissions officers there view testing? And then how would you recommend your students decide whether or not to submit specifically to Johns Hopkins? Yeah, for sure. So Hopkins, like other places of its caliber, I don't know off the top of my head, sort of like what the you know, middle 50% SAT, ACT score is of Hopkins, I would assume, you know, it's probably like on the ACT side, like a 33 to 35 or 34 to 36. And on the uh, on the SAT side, on the higher ends, you know, has to be close to the 1570 range, 1560 range on the lower end, maybe like a 1510, 1520. So like you, when you think about it statistically, like if 75% of the people that admit that are admitted that have testing are like above a 1510, a 1520. You just have to understand like what that means when it comes to testing expectations. Now, because of the pandemic and because of the test optional policies, I have no doubt that they are, you know, trained and continually trained on being able to make really amazing decisions without having testing. And I've been able to work at test optional institutions in my career. And quite frankly, one of the biggest shifts really has nothing to do with how an application is read. It's more about the individuals in the office removing the testing bias from the way that they read an application. So when you don't see it, but you're looking at grades, courses, transcripts, letters of recommendation, the quality of writing, and still being able to pull information sort of from that application that gives you confidence that the person is able to do really well academically versus when you have a student who has testing and being able to sort of give testing its appropriate value, but not giving it too much or too little uh, weight, you know, within the process. So I always tell students, you always want to make sure when you're thinking about submitting or not submitting is really sort of thinking about, does this test score reflect the type of student that I am? And one of the the presentations that we give, we talk about a student who has, and these are very like, you know, it's always more complicated than this, but this is sort of like an example we give is, you know, a student that has like a 4.0 or like a high 3.9 GPA, but their testing is like in the low 1300s. In that sort of example, the testing is not really indicative of the type of student that person is. So almost regardless of the school that they would be applying to, we would have that student go test optional because again, you want to sort of put your best foot forward academically. Most of the time, it's much more complicated than that because we're sort of talking about differences of 10, 20, 30 points in various scenarios. But typically, that's sort of a good barrier. But looking at the middle 50%, you know, as I mentioned earlier, 
that is sort of estimated for Hopkins. Where are you? You know, I think for most people that are sort of like, you know, above the 50% range, it can be fine to submit testing. If you're sort of above that 75th percentile, you probably should submit testing sort of no matter what. But, you know, as we tell all of our students, every situation is so individual and so specific. And you can also play into, you know, what courses did you take? Were you taking the highest curriculum available to you? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So all things are sort of individual in their execution, but you shouldn't not be afraid to be test optional if it really helps you within the process. Could you walk me through the admissions office from your point of view? So like you get my application, you open it, what's your process of reading it, reviewing it, what goes through your head? Yeah, so specifically at, at Hopkins, it was very much, and I imagine still today, pretty similar just because of the sort of high caliber of, of students that they were getting. And even more so at Hopkins, and I think at some other places, is very sort of academically centered. There was definitely a focus on making sure that students had qualities and characteristics, tangible and intangible that allowed us to, to navigate, you know, what they were doing academically through their courses that they chose, through the grades that they received, you know, through the GPA that they have, if that was, you know, available for their school, really focusing on, on the letters of recommendation that we were having. So a lot of our time was spent a lot on the academic side and, and really making sure that students not only were doing well academically, but were curious that wanted to, again, challenge themselves, that, that that took what they were doing academically seriously and were going to be able to not only do the work on campus, but also thrive, you know, academically as well. So a lot of time was spent on the academic piece. And then obviously the other, you know, factors within the application played a role as well, too, because of the research side of things, and especially because of the STEM lean, if you wanted to do something sort of in engineering or medicine in a broader sense, you really had to bring it. Research was almost a must, like real tangible experiences at hospital and not even just like, like shadow, like I hung out with the doctor for like two hours, like legitimate, like stuff that you were doing, like in a hospital or sort of medical clinic setting was almost like a must, like tangible research, ICEP experience, iGEM, et cetera. Like that was almost like mandatory. Like it just, again, because of the cobblers of student, you really needed to show the evidence and the proof that you had something that you were doing, you know, sort of that connected to your academic, you know, sort of space, but also, you know, through essays, you know, through the activities list. We also wanted people. And I think that was something that really mattered as well. We weren't looking for robots. We weren't looking as much as I just talked about people that really thrived academically. We also wanted people that cared about their communities that really wanted to, again, make a difference in some way. So it was like this really, I think, interesting balance between like a, a super high caliber academic place with really high expectations from everyone involved, but also a place where like we also wanted to, to get to know you really well and, and learn about you as a person in a way that I thought was really compelling within the process as well. And then what are some misconceptions that you often find about Johns Hopkins like as a university and then maybe also about the application process? I mean, I'm, I'm super biased. Like I love working there and probably one of my, one of the favorite places that, that I've worked. And I think one of the things that I think about Hopkins is it feels very like 
underrated to me. And that just may be like a Zach thing. <laughs> like maybe it's not true or like my bias from working there. But I feel like when you think about or name a lot of places that students are like, oh yeah, like this is like a top place in this, or this is like, you know, a best, the best place for us or whatever. Hopkins oftentimes isn't a place where people talk a lot about. And I felt that way even when I worked there. In some ways, I actually liked it because although we were like super selective and uh, I think at the time we were taking maybe 13% of our applicant pool and now it's, it's even sort of lower than that. Like we knew our worth as an institution. So the people who found us, the people who did a great job of really sort of talking through why they wanted to attend, it almost felt like they were we, they were sort of getting us and we were getting them and it really sort of formed like a really like affirmed a really cool like partnership between like student and, and institution because I think a lot of people just either don't know or they make assumptions about well the only thing they do well there is the stem side and I think what has happened is because the hospital system is ranked you know per perennially in the you know top one percent you know in the country in the world that that sort of like trickle down reputation has impacted what people think about the institution so you go to Hopkins if you want to be a doctor you go to Hopkins if you want to be like an engineer. You go to Hopkins if you want to do like biomedical stuff. And then everything else like sucks. And it was always really funny to me because I would tell people, and I'll tell people now, is that Hopkins is one of the best institutions in the world. Like they don't have things that they do not do well in. So whether it's from the humanities and the languages to history, to dance, to performing arts, like everyone there is quality. Everyone there does an amazing job with what they do. If you want to go to Hopkins, don't apply as a doctor don't apply as an engineer. Like you have to want to do other things, but apply as a dancer, apply as an English major, apply as, you know, someone wanting to do something in history or in languages, because those types of, 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 of applicants are so few and far between. It's never easy to get any, you still have to do an amazing job. But when you look at sort of like the STEM side versus the humanity side, the difference in application numbers is so different. It's kind of like the ED part. Getting in, in ED is not easy anywhere. But if it's one to you know five thousand versus one to thirty thousand in RD, like statistically, your chances are just a lot better. Same thing goes for Hopkins. Like if you're going, if you have sort of the the passion and the strength and the desire to be a humanities student, Hopkins absolutely should be on your list. And again, doesn't mean you're going to get in or it's going to be easy. But if you're going to do like biomed, if you're going to do you know something within medicine, you just have to understand like the level of competition is just so different at a place like that versus some other places where they do those things really well. But the reputation is just different because again, they don't have the hospital system or sort of the overall graduate school sort of uh, rankings and process that Hopkins tends to have. And then thinking about the application itself, are there major mistakes that you would often find in the application and the different components of the application? I mean, one of the like the one of the sillier ones, but quite frankly, it mattered a lot. Is there is an S uh, at the end of John? So, I mean, the number of applications that I read that just said like John Hopkins and all these other things, like it's a small, it's a small error, and it's not as though it was something where we like didn't admit somebody for that, but it gives you a little bit of pause to, to really sort of think about like, how much does this person know about us? Uh, so that was like a silly mistake that, you know, in many cases turned into like a bigger mistake. 
you know, because of that. I would say the other big mistake is sort of connect to what I just said is students who choose to apply to Hopkins like just because they want to do something in STEM, but either academically have no business applying or extracurricularly just haven't done much connected sort of to their 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 major of choice that would give an admissions officer like really any confidence that they have any sort of like expertise like in that area. And that is something that we, you know, could really go for any school, but I think particularly because of the way in which STEM applicants are read, you you just have to have like a baseline of of excellence in almost every way to really even be considered. And I think for some students, they just really discount or don't quite understand what that means and end up putting their application in a pool where they just have no business, you know, really, really applying. I'm glad you mentioned the Johns with an S Hopkins thing, because I'm sure that (laughs) I like, I'm sure that I would have accidentally written John Hopkins somewhere like on social media accidentally. Like, I'm just absolutely sure of it. Yeah. yeah. It's a thing. I mean, listen, like I said, it was never one of those things where like, if, if the person was like amazing, awesome in every single way. And like, that was the thing that they did. I cannot remember a time where we were like, well, we're not going to admit them because they did it. But if you were like on the fence about somebody or there were other components of the application that sort of like, you know, just didn't like make you feel super like exciting and like then that happens it just sort of like you know puts a sour taste in your mouth and you know you just never want to to try and do that obviously when you're uh, trying to impress an admissions officer yeah so students can just like control f john space and make sure they don't have that anywhere (laughs) at all yeah 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 that's a good one well i have john's with an s hopkins current (laughs) supplemental essay question in front of me so i'm going to go ahead and read it Founded on a spirit of exploration and discovery, Johns Hopkins University encourages students to share their perspectives, develop their interests, and pursue new experiences. Use this space to share something you'd like the admissions community to know about you, parentheses, your interests, your background, your identity, or your community, and how it has shaped what you wanted to get out of your college experience at Hopkins. And that's 300 to 400 words to answer that. So what would you say a successful response to this question looks like? The essay that I had when I worked there was different than this one. Um, it was more sort of about like collaboration sort of amongst you or your high school experience sort of mostly. But what I like about this question is that I think it really speaks to what I said in the beginning. So the idea of like ambition, the idea of challenging yourself, the idea of discovery, the idea of like exploration to me are all very much connected. And I think it really speaks to the type of student that Hopkins is looking for. And I think for any supplemental app, uh, essay that a, that a school is asking they're asking it for specific reasons and they're trying to, they're, they're making direct connections to the things that they care about in their process. So when you talk about a place that wants ambition, that wants people that are, that are, you know, comfortable with being uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera, the exploration idea, the idea that you're not going to be afraid of barriers, that you're not going to let challenges get in your way. It's all connected to the type of student that I think really thrives in that environment. So when I talk to students and I've been able to work with people that have been admitted to Hopkins since I've been working at Ingenious, we really talk a lot about really answering the prompts in a way that is not even just specific, but that is very directed to the idea like of exploration and being uncomfortable, stepping outside your comfort zone and doing things that objectively show like an admissions person 
this is how I did that. And not just sort of telling them, but being able to sort of show them, describe to them uh, and sort of all the ways that we help students do that. It doesn't matter to them in which sort of category of extracurriculars or academic or life, et cetera, like where it comes from. It just needs to be authentic. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be something that feels, you know, really compelling. You know, like other places, this gives you an opportunity to really help an admissions officer get to know you in the best way possible. So we talk to students all the time about your application becomes a story. And if you're writing something in your personal statements or your activities list is written sort of in a certain way, you want to make sure that within these sort of supplemental essays that you're telling a different story and you're, you're giving a different perspective and a different layer of who you are. And I think sometimes what happens is students will tell them the same story or expand upon something that they've already expanded on maybe even too much. And you're not really getting like another layer. You're not getting another dynamic, you know, perspective, you know, story, you know, from a student. So I think in this one sort of in particular, you just want to make sure that you're being authentic, genuine, but you're also giving somebody or giving them um, a story, you know, and in a foundation that allows them to really see you on campus doing those things or exploring or discovering in a way that they know you'll really want to be taking advantage um, sort of of the opportunities and the resources that they are. You've already kind of touched on this with the idea of showing and not telling, but with regards to this supplemental essay or just supplemental essays across the board, what are common mistakes that you find students often making? Yeah, I mean, not not specific enough, not detailed enough. They don't answer the prompts. Um, I, I think, you know, when it comes to the personal statement, you know, with, with all the prompts that are offered, you know, in a lot of cases, if you don't like answer the prompts, there's always like the seventh prompt, which is like, write whatever you want to write about. So even if like you choose the second one and you don't really answer it super well, it doesn't really matter all that much because ultimately, you know, it's just a long essay that helps uh, an AO get to know you super well. But these supplemental essays in a lot of cases, I think matter more. And really, again, speak to like, what is it that a college, what is it that admissions officers actually like really care about within their, within their process? The common application, you know, while they sort of survey schools in terms of their personal statement topics, like those are topics that colleges are not choosing. So these uh, essays, these questions within a supplemental piece, like these are like admissions offices literally saying like, this is what we want to ask. And these are the reasons why. So again, with this question, not being specific enough, not giving enough detail, you know, uh, telling, not showing. And I think these are probably, well, they are sort of common amongst all supplemental essay questions. But I think specifically to this one, they want proof in a, in a real sense that you're not afraid to step outside your comfort zone. And you're not afraid to explore. And if you haven't done that, like there are certainly ways to create a story that is truthful and uh, authentic that kind of gets to the point. But again, when we talk about fit, this is like a good example of if you don't have that experience or that's not who you are, like that's okay. But Hopkins may not be the place for you. And I think that's where, you know, all of the resources we give to students um, are, are, I think, really helpful to help them understand 
why fit is so critical and why not every school is the same and personalities and vibes are different. And part of the school research process is to help you navigate that. So you are applying to places that sort of suit you sort of better, you know, than others. And then obviously the Common App isn't specific to Hopkins, but are there any mistakes that you would highlight just in the Common App in general that you'd see the personal statement, the activities list, the other sections that you kind of just often see and be like, no, no, like, don't do that. So just in general, I think on the activities list, not enough description, not enough detail, not enough specifics. You know, you don't have a lot of space. So I think sometimes kids get very carried away in wanting to describe almost too much or one super specific thing. And then it, you don't really sort of get a whole story of sort of what the person was doing or what their impact was. Not enough use of numbers or percentages or clarity, you know, even to some degree. I think in some cases, the order becomes really important. So on the Common App, it literally tells you to be putting things in order from like most important to least important. We take a similar stance at Ingenious, but we also want to make sure that whatever sort of the application persona is that you have the narrative of your application, that that plays a role as well in the order of things. So even if the most important to least important is sort of different when we're thinking about your narrative, that can be okay because you're you're trying to tell a story and you're trying to make sure that you are um, having that sort of be cohesive throughout the entire you know application. I think in other aspects of you know, the personal statement becomes you know really important as well. Talking too much about like other people, telling too much story, not giving the admissions officer enough time to get to know you a lot better. I mean, I've read you know so many essays in my career and will often read them and then think well, what did I learn, you know, about the person? And you, and you don't want that like, to be the, the takeaway is like, what did I read? Or why is that important to this person? Or, you know, what do they want me to take away? Like you always want to have that message be, be super clear, you know, with all of the writing that you'll, that you'll be submitting. And what do you look for in letters of recommendation? Relationships. Relationships, you know, getting to, to really understand, you know, what was... What was it like, you know, from the from the teacher perspective, you know, working with the student, getting to know this student, really identifying places where we knew from the letter that the student was engaged, that they were participating, that they were a leader in class, that they were collaborative, that they were helping others, that they were curious. You know, it's not always about staying after class for three hours, you know, and, you know, doing something like that. But it's really just about allowing the teacher to see you in a way that then allows them to write a positive and enthusiastic letter about who you are as an academic. I think one of the things that can often happen, and this was sort of a, an annoyance that I often had with letters of recommendation from the teacher side, is that students get too caught up in well, the teacher knows about my life outside of the classroom and they know my activities and they know all these other things. That's actually not what the teacher recommendation is about. The teacher recommendation is really about what are you like as an academic, giving the admissions officer the ability to then project and predict you know, what you'll be like in class. Are you leading class discussions in high school? Are you, you know, if you're in small classes, are you not afraid to speak up, to challenge what other people are saying, you know, in, in a, obviously a, a polite way? Um, these are things that, that we were looking at. These are things that we were caring about. 
I don't really care as much to know what the teacher's perspective is about your activities. Like that's what the, the counselor, you know, recommendation is about. So focusing more on, you know, academic classroom anecdotes and, and experiences and, and taking advantage of those opportunities um, always mattered a, a lot more. And then like many schools, Hopkins accepts supplemental materials. What sort of materials can students send and which students would you recommend take advantage of this opportunity? So I think supplemental materials can be helpful depending upon what you're trying to add to your application. Again, I think supplemental materials have sort of taken on like a life of their own in the process because I think a lot of time, again, families and students want to feel like they're doing everything that they can. So if they know or hear about a school accepting, you know, more letters of recommendation or, you know, slide room portfolios or whatever, they just want to sort of like stack the deck and like submit anything and everything that they can. But in some cases, it may not really help you and it may not be appropriate to do so. So I would say that anyone who has a very specific, like objectively strong talent you know, whether it's in making something on the engineering side, potentially more arts or dance or music or theater, et cetera. If you are like really good at something and not just like really good, like in a not as objective way, but like a real, like you've won awards or you've done really impressive things or you've won, you know, competitions, et cetera. I think that can be a way to sort of just show a different side of who you are within the application. I think on the other piece of it, you know, uh, actual letters of recommendation, you know, for example, submitting, you know, another teacher rec or a community member rec or maybe a leader of a club, you know, recommendation, it can be helpful as long as what these people are saying about you is different than what you've already been getting from your college counselor and from your teacher. So oftentimes people are saying, well, I want to see like a third teacher, right? Okay, but tell me why, like, what is it about this other teacher that's different than the other two that you've already, or the other one that you're already going to be submitting? And there can be really good answers out there. Maybe it's from like an, an elective class um, and it's really connected to your, to your major. Like that's a really good idea. Uh, maybe you've done research, you know, through Ingenious or through a local, you know, college. That gives you a different perspective working with an adult, you know, who doesn't see you on an everyday basis. So there can be some really good reasons as to why you're submitting a letter of rec that's different for additional or similarly support portfolio pieces, but it all has to make sense. It shouldn't just be, oh, they were giving me the option. I'm going to do it. You have to really be thinking about how is this going to help me and, and what have I done to almost prove to some degree that like what I'm going to submit that's different than what they're sort of requiring is worth them taking the time to read. Because one of the most annoying parts of, of the admissions process is getting extra stuff and being like, why did they send this? Like, this isn't adding anything. This isn't helping in any way. And it just took, you know, more time, you know, out of, out of your day to do that. So extra stuff can be helpful, but only if it's actually going to help. And it's something that uh, if you're working with Ingenious that we have like suggested, you know, that you do or given you the okay to actually uh, to, to submit. I think people, I assume, associate supplemental materials with the arts. So like you said, like a portfolio, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. music, et cetera. Um, but you mentioned engineering. So for STEM applicants, mm -hmm. what would that look like? Would it be like a research paper, maybe like a summary of a project they did? Yeah, I would say, you know, usually we're not wanting to submit the whole paper. So like an abstract, you know, it can be, it can be a really good idea. Um, 
a, a newer, you know, MIT, you know, sort of is, is well-known Columbia, sort of the same way of sort of having um, the ability to send in like maker, like portfolios. So like diagrams, pictures, you know, et cetera, of like what you've done as like an engineering or STEM student. I think those can be really helpful, you know, absolutely Stanford sort of the same thing. So I think, you know, if you're able to sort of do something with your hands, and I would say the same thing about photography, the same thing I'm working, working with a student now who's like a legitimate, like really good, like baker, chef, cook, et cetera, and has done like media connected to what she what she's been able to make. So we're going to work with her on submitting something, you know, sort of to her college application. Ultimately, like, is this going to be the thing that like, gets her into college? No, but if I'm an admissions officer, number one, you don't really see that so often, like someone who has like a high caliber talent like that. So why not show it off and why not add it, you know, sort of to the conversation to make yourself be even more different than other people. So I think there are other ways, you know, again, research abstracts and, and other things that people can do, but, you know, don't be afraid to take advantage of those opportunities, again, as long as they're going to add, you know, sort of substance and content to what you've already submitted. Do you have additional insight that you would offer to either international applicants or to transfer applicants? Um, I mean, the process is generally, you know, the same. I think on the transfer side, what I'll say is that for schools of the caliber Hopkins, you know, not many people leave. So it just becomes really hard to transfer in when the school typically isn't getting any bigger. Not many people are leaving. So it becomes hard, I think, to transfer in. But it was something that uh, most schools are taking advantage of in some way, shape or form. Just have like a good, like reason why, like, and it could be a million different things, but similar to sort of the story and the narrative within your application as an, as a, you know, first year applicant, as a transfer student, why is Hopkins, you know, in, in sort of your eyes, a better fit or a better option than sort of where you currently are? And there's not a right or wrong answer there, but ultimately, as you're reading transfer applications, you want to understand, like, why? Like, why are you wanting to make a pretty significant move, you know, a year in or two years into your college career to sort of start over someplace else? And, and what are the reasons why, you know, you want to be able to do that? On the international side, I'll sort of say what I said earlier about sort of the STEM engineering sort of piece. You know, there can be sometimes a lean on the international side to focus on those areas. So again, if you can be different, if you can authentically and genuinely have an interest that feels non-STEM oriented, research Hopkins, you know, learn more about it because I do think it can be a really cool opportunity to have a place that um, is really catered to undergrads that is going to empower you from day one and allow you to do some really amazing things while you're there. But again, you know, from the TOEFL to, you know, other things that they're going to be looking for, their process is going to be the same sort of as other places, but just be careful again about the STEM lean and what that means for the level of, of competition, you know, every year. Do you have specific advice for students who are younger? So maybe they're freshmen, sophomores, maybe they're even in middle school and they'd love to go to a school like Hopkins in the future. What can they be doing right now to prepare? Yeah, I would say get tangible experience. So we talk a lot to our current students about the need for clarity, the need for being concise in the application process, specifically on the activities list. But I think what helps that is 
having longevity and consistency with projects or clubs, organizations, advocacy, etc. that feels and that is real and that is tangible and that is impactful. And I think there's always sort of like a major urgency and a major rush when a student enters into 11th grade or the summer before 12th grade to sort of jump into these things, you know, projects and, you know, things that are going to be sort of more tangible. I think that's great. There's never sort of like, you know, there's always time to some degree, but if you're, you know, 12, 13, 14, whatever, and you have a passion at that age, or you're even in ninth grade and have a passion for something, maybe you'll change your mind, you know, and who knows, but jump into it and, and use whatever resources you have at your disposal to jump into to projects that probably feel too big and feel that you don't know how you're going to do it. Because I think that type of, of exposure and I think that type of experience in a lot of ways help will help you write an amazing supplemental essay to Hopkins and will help you get comfortable with discomfort and will help you stretch and will help you, you know, challenge yourself and and sort of get in a situation that you have to sort of figure out like what to do next. And I think those things are oftentimes qualities that a lot of students are afraid of and, and they don't do. And I think whether it's Hopkins or some or other places will appreciate this too, but I think especially on, on the Hopkins end, those are all qualities that coupled with you know, great academic strength and course rigor, great, you know, uh, essays, et cetera, I think can really help students. So the earlier you can jump into those things, I think the better, you know, it can be, because even if you end up changing your mind, these things will inform, you know, your next steps and you don't know the path you're going to take. So even if you don't know if it's going to be the thing you're going to do through high school or through college, just try it, you know, and see, and see sort of where, where it takes you. Any additional words of wisdom for students, for families? I mean, start early in this process, <laughs> Ellen, you know, we're sort of all, all jumping in right now uh, into, into our own application counseling experiences with students. Just, you know, start early and that will, that'll, that'll take you a long way. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Zach. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into admissions at Johns Hopkins. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag Inside Admissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.